Let's talk about parenting for a few minutes. With 115 children here at Redeemer, it seems an appropriate conversation. Since 1983, there have been four parenting styles that are commonly used. And they're based on two dimensions of parent behavior. So four parenting styles, two dimensions of parent behavior. And here's the parent behavior. The first is demandingness. And that's the extent that parents control their children's behavior or demand maturity, demandingness. The second parent dimension is responsiveness. And that refers to the the degree that parents accept their children and are sensitive to their emotional and developmental needs. So you got that? Two parent behaviors, demandingness and responsiveness. And from those come four different parenting styles. The first one is authoritative parenting. Authoritative parenting has high demandingness and high responsiveness. So authoritative parents, they they set goals and and boundaries for their children, and they carry through with those. But they discuss things with their children and reason with them. They're also affectionate and encouraging. And so these children uh, turn out to be happy and content and independent And they do well academically. They have good self-esteem and social skills. They have better mental health, and they exhibit less violent tendencies. Okay, authoritative parenting. Second parenting, authoritarian. And this style is high demandingness and low responsiveness. And so authoritarian parents demand blind obedience by saying things, because I told you so. That's what they do. So they're strict, they're stern, but they're not very responsive to their children's needs. And they're not very nurturing. And so these children tend to be unhappy and dependent and insecure. They have a low self-esteem. They perform worse academically, and they're prone to mental issues. Third type of parent. You still with me? Come on, parents. You ought to be interested because you're one of these. Permissive parenting or indulgent parenting. And so this parenting has low demandingness, but high responsiveness. You get it. These parents set few or little boundaries, and they don't enforce any of the rules, but they're so warm and indulgent of their children. They make excuses for their children's poor behavior. They're more concerned that their children like them and not rebel against them than they are about their children becoming mature and learning boundaries. They're lenient and indulgent of temper tantrums. And and children of these parents can't control their impulses. They don't accept responsibility for their own actions. They blame others for what they know is their own fault. It's very difficult for them to become independent and responsible for themselves. And the fourth and last Low demandingness and low responsiveness, you get that. Just terrible parent all around, right? No boundaries, no care. So it should come as no surprise to us that after decades of study, researchers have found which parenting style do you think to be the best? The first one, right? Authoritative. High demandingness and high responsiveness. That consistently leads to good outcome for children. And so even our own psychologists and psychiatrists say this is the parenting style you should use. And so it should also come as no surprise that the parenting style that works best and is most effective looks remarkably 
like the parenting style that God uses with us. God is authoritative with us, right? He is firm, and yet he is fair and reasonable. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Yet he's also caring and emotionally available. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Children exposed to this kind of parent are usually competent and confident. Dear friends, we are now the children of God. And so you and I must take the high responsiveness of God, which feels so good to us, the reality that he does accept us, amen, good news, that he's sensitive to our needs, along with that responsiveness, we also have to embrace God's demandingness. God, our Father, places demands on our lives, specifically, so that you and I will grow up, as Scripture says, that we will grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. If God our Father were only responsive, he would also be indulgent, and we would be children who could not control our impulses, who would not accept responsibility, who blame other people for what they do. God wants better than that for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that He would respond to us and require from us. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me. I'm embarrassed to say it. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 4. When you found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 34, let's stand together and we're going to hear read once again from the word of the living God. Chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then Moses climbed out Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word always. So thankful. Through it you reveal yourself to us. You guide our lives. Thank you for your spirit that's present with us. So now, Spirit of God, we call on you. Join now your word and the truth of it and make change take place within us so that we do grow up even in this moment and become more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For the last four weeks, we've been looking here at the first four, chap, first four verses in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. And everything that's beautiful about these verses, we could call these verses the responsiveness of God, the way he accepts and meets our needs. He gives Moses this glorious vision of the entirety 
of the promised land. It must have been spectacular. Moses must have been awed by it. He not only shows Moses the promised land, but he speaks to Moses as well. And that's been part of the responsiveness, right? We've loved about the Lord. He doesn't just show us, but he, he speaks to us. That's the kind of God he is, the kind of relationship that he has with his children. We looked at these individual tribes that are listed here and been mindful of how God uniquely blessed each one of them with unique gifts and how God uses their uniqueness and giftedness and works it together so that his kingdom is built. Last week, we were encouraged by the responsiveness to know that we have a a father who never forgets a promise he made. I, I forget promises. God never does. No matter how long it takes him to fulfill the promise, he never forgets them because they're too good for us. They're too full of blessing for us. And so God responds to us by never forgetting a promise, but always faithfully fulfilling every promise that he makes. But amid all the glory and all the grace that certainly is true about the responsiveness of God, his accepting us, his responding to our emotional and developmental needs, there remains in these verses the demandingness of God as well. The behavior and the maturity that he requires of his children. We hear it at the end of verse 4. Look there. God says to Moses, as he looks out over the promised land, you will not cross over into it. I've let you see it, but you will not cross over into it. And so this is the discipline of the Lord in the life of Moses. God set boundaries for Moses, and Moses transgressed them. And though we've talked about how there is, even in this discipline, there's grace, you know, Moses isn't going to have to march around Jericho seven days and seven times on the seventh day. And Moses is not going to have to fight every battle that's going to have to be fought to take over the promised land. And in just a few moments, Moses is going to be in the presence of the Lord. So there's grace in this discipline. But I bet in this moment, we would have a hard time convincing Moses or talking Moses out of his desire to go into the promised land. And so if we're honest, and be honest, there's probably emerging within us just a bit of the permissive, indulgent leniency. We feel that after all that Moses has done, he's been so good, he's been so faithful in leading these stiff-necked, rebellious people. He's followed the Lord, surely the Lord should let Moses off the hook and allow Moses to have the desire of his heart. But remember how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would respond to us and require of us. I think we believe that leniency is more loving, honestly, because we don't embrace the offense of sin. In our lives, we really think it just isn't that bad. But let me tell you what. God knows how really bad sin really is. God knows that the wages of sin is what? 
death. It doesn't take a whole bunch of sins piled up together, and then that leads to death. It takes just one, just one unforgiven sin to keep us out of the presence of God forever. And let me tell you, that is real death. Real death is being separated from God, the Father, from his light, and from his life for all eternity. And see, we can't imagine that here on earth because it's not a reality for us. No matter how it is we experience death here, still on this earth, God is present with us. God is present in you and me. He indwells us by his spirit. So there is his light and there is his life. And so the most violent and the most vehement atheist who rages against God, still that person benefits from the light and the life and the love of the God that he denies here on earth. But just one sin, not forgiven by Christ, will lead to the death that will separate the one who does not believe in Christ from God forever. So what qualifies as sin? Our confession of faith says sin is any, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Any one transgression of the law of God. Any one behavior that does not conform to the image of God, or does not conform to the command of God, that one sin is enough to keep us out of the presence of God for all eternity and lead to our death. I'm just saying, if we thought a little more about the gravity of sin, perhaps we would be a little less likely to indulge in it and a little less lenient on it. And a little more receptive to the discipline that keeps us from sinning more. In any case, the question is how would a good and loving father respond to the sin of Moses, his son? Remember what even our psychiatrists and psychologists and all its research say. They concede that authoritative parenting is the best. High responsiveness and high demandingness. And so a father who loves deeply and vastly and beyond all measure not only responds to his children, but he requires of us that we keep his standards, that we keep his requirements. And so here's another collision with our culture. Because our culture indulges. Whatever you believe, it's okay. Whatever lifestyle you choose, indulge it. It's okay. This is an article from The Atlantic entitled, Are We a Society of Self-Indulgers? You ready? It's about a paragraph, just so you know. In the New York Times, Judith Warner explores the idea that America has moved from a culture of narcissism to a culture of dysregulation. Interesting word, dysregulation. And everything from Wall Street excess to internet addiction and food overconsumption. The signs that something is amiss in our inner mechanisms of control and restraint are everywhere. Eating disorders, in general a disorder of self-regulation, grew epidemic in the past few decades. We read about dopamine fiends 
sitting enslaved to their screens, their brains hooked on the burst of pleasure they receive from the ding of each new email message or the arousing flash of a tweet. We see reports of young children so unable to control their behavior, they're being expelled from preschool. As teenagers who after years spent gorging on instant gratification, too easy presents from eager-to-please parents, the thrill of the fast-changing screen, they're restless, demanding, easily bored, and said to be suffering from a plague of insatiability. According to Warner, usually the emotional, reward-seeking, selfish part of our brain is checked and balanced by our awareness of the consequences. But a period of affluence and endless messages promoting instant gratification upset this balance. Is it possible now that we, as individuals and a society, are suffering from a pathological lack of self-discipline? Interesting, isn't it? We know the consequences of a lack of discipline. A good parent, a good father like God is, he's saving his children from themselves when he disciplines them. And that's what this prohibition is to Moses. You shall not cross over into the land. It is the discipline of God. And just to remind you of this story, because you know what? Look around the room. There are a lot of people who weren't here four years ago when we started Deuteronomy, right? So we're going to review this story just one more time. Amen. (laughs) Moses and his brother Aaron had a problem, and it was a big problem. They were in the desert with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and their livestock, and there was no water. Desert, no water, not good. The people complained, why did you bring us here to die? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? So the problem was bigger than Moses. It was bigger than he could fix, bigger than his brother Aaron could fix. And so Moses goes to the entrance of the tabernacle of the Lord, and he falls face down, the tabernacle of the Lord. So here is a desperate man, right? He's desperate. He's at the end of himself. He's helpless to do anything about the situation with which he's confronted. And so how do you think Moses' father reacts to Moses' desperation? Scripture tells us, the glory of the Lord appeared to him. Now listen, this is all in one sentence. Moses fell at the tent of the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to Moses. All together. Now listen, someone once said that slow can be better than fast. When it brings about the fullness of time and accomplishes God's purpose. But listen, fast can be really good too, can't it? And so immediately... After Moses falls face down, the Lord shows him his glory. His glory. Moses saw the glory of the Lord. And so that's God, the Father's response to Moses' plea. His glory shows up. And in his goodness and grace, God didn't just show Moses his glory and then say, Okay, now you've seen my glory. Figure out the problem for yourself. No, God speaks to Moses. And he says this. Take the staff. And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock 
can drink. Clear, explicit directions from the Father. His will, his ways, his boundaries. So, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Wait a minute, we? We bring water? Moses, what do you, you mean you and Aaron? No, 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 no. God, the God who showed you his glory, said he would bring water from the rock. Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Boom, boom. What? Wait, Moses, wait a minute. Wait, you, you struck the rock twice. The God who showed you his glory said, speak to the rock and it will pour out its water. So a desperate man, a man whose desperation was known by the entire community because they were desperate right along with him. This desperate man goes to the Lord, his God, his father. His father immediately responds with his glory and his word and a solution for his desperation. And Moses responds so that great goodness and responsiveness of his father is to disobey him, to act before these people as if he is the one who will rescue them from their desperation. What was Moses' motivation? I have no idea. What did Moses hope to accomplish by disobeying God? No idea. Is Moses frustrated? Absolutely. Is that an excuse for his discipline or lack of self or or, or disobedience? No. Do we really understand the severity of this sin and the consequences it could have on God's people, even if it weren't premeditated, even if it was unintentional? Even if it happened as a result of frustration, still it happened. And Moses didn't have himself under control. And because of Moses' sin, how will anyone know the glory and the greatness of the Lord? Moses stole the glory for himself. Won't that just encourage people to do what they're inclined to do anyway? We're all glory stealers. We all want to be independent. Because of Moses' sin, how will the knowledge... Of the glory of the Lord cover the earth as waters cover the sea. How will others know that they too can fall face down before the Lord? How will others know that they can trust the Lord to provide in their desperation since Moses acted before them as if he were the one making provision? How will anyone else know that God is holy, perfectly holy, and that he must be obeyed in all things? Moses' sin disabled these people. So I think about us and our sin. And I wonder how our sin disables people. How it disables us from seeing the glory and the greatness of God. How our sin disables others from seeing the glory and the greatness of God. From seeing that the Lord provides from seeing that the the Lord is holy. What should a good father do to a disobedient child? Again, we know, because our psychologists tell us. He should discipline his son, and so he does. The rest of the story is this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, 
you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Even if we do not feel that this discipline is right, we know it's what a good father would do. And even if we would rather avoid the conflict that comes from telling someone no, a good father does not avoid it. Even if we would rather not look at the disappointment and or anger of the one being disciplined, a good father is willing to look upon it. Because a good father knows how good discipline is for his children. Listen to this. And don't ever forget it. God wants better for you than you want for yourself. God wants better for you than you want for yourself. He doesn't want us displaying these characteristics of indulged children, temper tantrums, blaming others, making excuses, unable to control impulses, unable to accept responsibility for our actions. You know as well as I do, you don't like to be around that kind of people. You don't. They're unpleasant. We have names for them behind their backs. God has better for us than that. He has his light to shine from us. He has his love to, and his life to be offered through us by the gospel. And he has the image of his son to be formed in us. And so it's his discipline that brings that light and life and image that will be so attractive to those who are being saved. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. Chapter 13, verse 5. And have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Let me tell you the word used here for discipline. It means to assist in the development of a person's ability to make appropriate choices. Discipline is assisting us in the ability to make right choices. The word chastise here means to punish with discipline in mind. And so who, according to these verses in Hebrews, are the ones disciplined? Those who are accepted by the Father, right? Those who are loved by the Father, they are the ones who are disciplined. And so if you are accepted by the Lord, and you are accepted through the Lord, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the Father will discipline you because He wants better for you than you want for yourself. How deep the Father's love, how vast beyond all measure, that He would not only respond to us, but require from us as well. And what is the result or the end goal of discipline. It's restoration. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore means to cause to be in a condition to function well, to put in order. To function well, to put in order. That's what it means to be restored. The Apostle Paul's final words to the 
Christians in Corinth are these. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. (laughs) That's the aim. Even of discipline. That restoration comes to our lives. That right functioning comes to our lives. That right ordering comes to our lives. And so to what was Moses restored? All that was lost by sin. Restored was his all of the glory of his father. Restored was his complete dependence on God his father. Restored was his complete submission to the commands and the ways of his father. Restored was his all of the holiness of his father. Restoration, right thinking, right functioning, right ordering. That's the goal that your father has for your life and for mine. Because he wants better for us than we want for ourselves. How deep the father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would respond to us and require from us and discipline us when we do not live in accordance with his will. I've got to end by reading this. Because I want to make sure I haven't left the wrong impression that discipline equals payment for sin. You know what I've learned through the years? Everybody doesn't listen to me. I really learned that. And here I thought you hung on my every word. So wake up, okay? Because this is important. Discipline does not equal payment for sin. Jesus, through faith in him, has paid for your sins and mine. Past, present, and future. Got it? Even the ones that we don't confess because we don't even realize we sinned. It's all covered by Jesus. Past, present, and future. And so John writes this, 1 John 2, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, raise your hand if you sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of Of the whole world. So if you're trusting in Christ, you are forgiven. The goal of discipline, of God's demandingness, becomes making us more like Christ, which is a huge blessing for us here on this earth. And so John continues We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would respond to us and require from us. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you again for your truth. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, which is what all of this is, Lord. You are a holy and just God, and you cannot dwell in the presence of sin, and we are sinful people, and so we have a problem. You responded to our problem. By sending Jesus to pay the price for our sins. We thank you 
Lord, for responding to our greatest need. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us at that point, but, Lord, that's just the beginning of a life where you, through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, make us more and more into the image of Jesus. And so, Lord, thank you for what you do in our lives to make us more like Christ, for the discipline you bring. Lord, for not letting us off the hook. Because when we get off the, when we're let off the hook, we just continue to do the same old things. But when you press on us, when you discipline us, Lord, that's when change comes. So help us to receive your discipline as a good gift from a good father. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for responding to us. Thank you for loving us enough to want better for us than we want for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.